Open your Bibles, please, to our scripture for today. Um, <clears throat> which is found in Acts chapter, chapter 4, verses 5 to 12. All right. And um, <clears throat> if you don't have your own Bible, I believe the, the Pew Bible is already back in the back of the pews. You're welcome to use those as well. If not, it will be projected just in a few seconds here. And I will be reading from the uh, English Standard Version, chapter 4, starting with verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family and when they had set them in the, in the midst they re, they inquired by what power or by what, by what name did you do this then peter filled with the holy spirit said to him rulers of the people and elders if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Then Jesus is the, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father God, your people are waiting, thirsty and hungry for you, for some word from you. Fill them with your spirit, O God. Fill them with your word today that they may leave this place no longer empty, but full. In Jesus' name, amen. The man who gets Peter and John in so much trouble um, didn't go through what most babies go through. His mom and dad watching for those milestones that never came. Motor milestones, that is. Um, when will baby sit independently? Every mom and dad know these milestones. They've seen it happen time and again with their children. When will he start to crawl? When will he take his first step? When, when will he run? When will the terrible two start? My second baby skipped crawling altogether. Um, she went from sitting to running and jumping. She went from sitting to running to jumping from her crib to the floor, on out, out her room and out to doggy door in the middle of the night. And then she realized what she was missing and went from running to cuddling. You wonder why she was in a hurry in the first place, right? Um, she had no idea, I suppose, that, you know, just about the most comfortable place in the whole universe is mom's... Uh, um, what? Bosom and mom's tummy. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine the mom and the dad of this crippled man 
sad, as it were, that when they realized that their, you know, that, you know, that their son's legs would not move. Can you imagine the self-questioning? Can you imagine what they were thinking, this mom and dad, when they realized that their son is not going to pr progress through those motor skills from sitting to crawling to standing to walking to running to jumping? Can you imagine the questions they had about their own worth? God, what have we done to deserve this? Why do we, why, you know, why this fate? Do we deserve such fate? And the question is, how do you resurrect dead legs that have never walked before? Legs that never knew what walking was like. For all his life, for over 40 years, could have been 41, 46 years, over 40 years anyway. That's what our story tells us, the story before the reading that we just read today. And in a, in a society that thinks misfortune equals God's displeasure, this man is doomed. Unless something changes, they think, unless God smiles at him, is doomed to a life of mendicancy, a life of begging to subsist, seeking alms, trusting his life on people's pittances, because God would not relent, would not smile at him. So there he, so there he was, this crippled man who, who got Peter and John in so much trouble, begging at the temple steps. There he was. And he must have been crying out something like this, you know, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. Or maybe, you've, as we've, we see, you know, people begging today with a, you know, sm a, a small note, maybe even, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. Please, mister, alms for the poor, have pity. Alms for a crippled man, please, sir, have pity. I need bread to eat. And you hear the sound of the coin bouncing off the side of the tin can and hitting the bottom of the can. And the man looks, it's a, it's a penny. And he reaches in and puts it in his pocket. Uh, much better, I suppose, um, when people hear the sound of, this, of their pittances against an empty can than a half full can. Somehow he thinks the uh, tinny sound of coin against metal makes them feel better about giving. I wouldn't argue with someone who knows. And this man has been doing it for over 40 years. He must know. Then Peter and John all of a sudden appears one day, as they do every, almost every day in those days. Scripture tells us in the book of Acts that they were in the temple just about every day. And it's mid-afternoon now, about 3 o'clock, the same time of day when Jesus Christ was crucified. They're hurrying, praying, meet, prayer meeting is about to start. And come on, Peter, I could just hear John say, come on, Peter, you're a little slow today. Well, Peter seems to be slower than John. You know, I mean, John is, uh, John is younger than Peter. We know that from the Gospels. Um, no time to lose, Peter. Come on, let's go. They're about to close the gate. And as they walk up the steps, they hear the crippled man repeat his spiel. It's the same man they saw yesterday. 
Same man they saw the day before that. Same man everybody's seen around the temple at the temple steps for years and years. It almost seems like this man is synonymous with the temple steps. Ever since Herod the Great started rebuilding the temple to be as great as his own ego. It's been about 45, 46 years. We know that from the, from the Gospels as well. Come to think of it, this temple that Herod is rebuilding and, re, and, and, and making more grand and magnificent is just about the same, old, same age as this crippled man, born crippled. As they walk up the gates, they hear the crippled man repeat his spiel. Please, mister, alms for the poor. Please, sirs, have mercy on the crippled man. Have pity on me. And something somehow possesses Peter and John that day. Something they didn't have the day before or even the day before that. Somehow they realize that something needs to be done right then and there. Not more pittances, not more giving of alms. They probably did that over and over and over again in the past. Something grabbed hold of them. It's the conviction that hits them like a rock that this man needs to live like they live. To cease from subsisting and begin living in God's new and better world that has been ushered in by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the question remains, how do you resurrect dead legs that have never known what walking is like? Can somebody tell me, how do you resurrect dead legs? And as we begin to ask that question, it's really not the right question, at least not for, uh, for Peter and John. It's the wrong question for them, really. This is the type of question that makes sense only to those who never saw. To the likes of you and me, perhaps, who are so far removed from the event itself that we allow our minds to question its possibility to frame the question in such a way as to make it ridiculous to even try. To frame the question so that failure is not only anticipated, but failure is accepted. But to Peter and John, who saw the dead man, or a dead man, live, this is precisely the wrong question. They don't need to know how, as though knowing the mechanics of anything would bring something about. It's not their know-how that would resurrect this man's legs from the dead. They don't need to know how. They simply know. They know it because they have seen it. And not just to any man. They saw Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God who claimed to be the bringer of God's kingdom on earth, who claims to usher in a, new, a whole new world, a better world, who claims to have ushered in this end-time revolution by the Father. They watch him 
They watch him get murdered in the most gruesome way and in three days watch him come back to life. That's how they know. They didn't have to know how. They just knew. And they heard him and they touched him and they ate with him. For about the same number of days he's been alive. How many years he's been alive? For about 40 some days. They simply know. They know that what they saw was not random probability happening just this once through some luck of the draw. That it isn't some random causality. Some lucky resurrection of dead cells much in the same way inanimate matter somehow became animate matter sometime long, long ago. No, what they saw was none other than the start of God's new world, the last phase of his great redemption drama to reclaim our lost world. What they saw was not a random act. What they saw was a deliberate act a demonstration of the power of this new creation when believed and sought after with heart and soul. This new kind of reality, a reality where resurrection is not just a possibility, but resurrection happens. And it happens all the time. What happens that day on the steps of the temple isn't the, uh, a calculated move of faith on the part of uh, Peter and, and John. It's not as though they went there and said, how about we do something today, something extraordinary, just because Jesus is alive. How about we bring this man's legs to life? If we have enough faith, we can do this. Let's do it. No. Scripture tells us, that a new conviction grabs them as they were walking up the same steps they walk up every single day in those days, almost every single day. The conviction that was not there to do barely a day before, brought on, we can only imagine, by the Spirit's urgings. You know, a miracle is not something one plans. It isn't even a matter of faith outpointing doubt. Miracles happen because God has some larger purpose he wishes to accomplish through us, if it matters, which we are not able to grasp at that time. And this spontaneous compulsion grabs both John, Peter and John, almost instantaneously, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Luke tells us in, in Acts, um, they've seen this crippled man many times in the temple, day after day. They looked at him in much the same way as everybody did, you know. But today, their conviction shows up in their piercing look as they go up those steps. All of a sudden, they see this guy. And you know how it is, like, you know how it is when you see somebody begging out in the streets, right? You try to avoid making eye contact. That's the first thing you, you, you do if you don't want to give anything or if you've got nothing to give. You make, you know, and, and you know, they, they follow you with those eyes because they, they seem to know that when your eyes lock into their own eyes, that the battle is half won. 
But the process is reversed today, this day. It is no longer this, you know, this uh, crippled man trying to, to capture the eyes of, of these two individuals, you know, just, just, just for, the, for the chance of some pittance from them. It's reversed. The story tells us that it is Peter and John now possessed with a conviction that wasn't there the day before, you know, and, and they, they, they look at this guy. It's the same guy. They know this guy. You know, I wonder why it's not even, he, the guy's not even named. He should have been named. They knew this guy. But then as soon as this conviction grabs hold of them, their eyes fixed on this guy and they would not let him go. It's the story, it's the reverse of what usually happens. Peter and John do not avoid the man's eyes this time. In times past, they avoided the, crip, the crippled uh, man's piercing eyes. Today is different. Today, what's different? Well, today God is about to do a miracle as a message to us all, clear to our day and clear to the end of time. And the beggar instinctively knows that when he locks his eyes with people that he wants to beg from, he'll get something. He didn't know what was coming. This time around, Peter and John initiate eye contact and they're in the spirit zone now. And they are about to do the spirit's bidding. Filled with the spirit and filled with the freshness of Jesus' resurrection that they have seen. And filled with much prayer. For they were always praying in those days, they say. Peter and John step into the breach. They step into that breach and the man's dead legs, which had never known what walking was like, came to life. And can you imagine what happens, you know, the, the commotion that happens when something like that extraordinary happens unexpectedly? And the man, having not walked ever before, is beside himself, wouldn't you be? He flails, he hangs on to, you know, to Peter and John. He leaps for joy. He doesn't know what to do. He's testing his newfound legs, the legs he never had. Finally, after some 40-odd years, his motor skills can go beyond sitting. He can skip crawling and walking and jumping. It's 45, 46 years late but better late than never. One must take blessing when blessing comes. I can just imagine this guy say, woo, woo, yeah. I wish mom and dad were here to see this day. I wish they were here to see this day. And he turns to people around him and he says, God smiles at me at last. He smiles at me at last. He never thought that God had always been smiling at him. Of course, he couldn't see that. And he draws a crowd and gets Peter and John in a, whole, in a heap of trouble. Because now the authority sees what's happened. 
And now they cannot gainsay what's just happened, but because it was being done in the name of somebody they detested, they had to somehow put a damp, to, to dampen their spirits. And they had to somehow find, find some ways to explain it away. And so this man draws a crowd and gets Peter and John in trouble. And, but you know, it, it's bound to happen. How do you hide a miracle so stupendous? You don't. You can't. And I sense that the Spirit had no intentions of hiding this one. For this miracle is for the church as much as for the crippled man. It's for you. It's for you. And it's for me. For this miracle is a template of what our lives could be if we believe as they believed back then. In God's new reality, resurrection is not a one-off event. Resurrection of some form is the norm. It happens in many shapes and forms. And in God's kingdom, resurrection is not an exception. Resurrection is the norm. It happens. And the sooner we accept that, the sooner our lives will be better. As I said at the beginning, the crippled man is as old as Herod's temple itself. Not the temple, yeah, as the temple, you know, the temple has been around for several centuries. But when King Herod started his massive renovation project, as massive as his own ego, the crippled man was just a baby. They're about the same age. Day after day and year after year, Herod's temple kept getting bigger and magnificent. But you know, magnificent though it was, it was crippled from birth. And the crippled man becomes, as it were, a symbol or the symbol of a people whose spiritual life is dead or is dying. Crippled, as it were, from birth. Unable to walk and run and, and jump for joy and fulfill its calling to be a blessing to the world. It's in need. It's in need of a resurrection. It's in need of a supernatural intervention which Jesus alone can give. Do you find yourself struggling in your spiritual life? Do you find yourself almost swept away by troubles? Well, there's hope for you. And the message for you is the message to this uh, crippled man. Resurrection happens. And the miracle... Unlike the previous miracles of Jesus, I mean, Jesus, you know, we, we find in the Gospels that, you know, another miracle when, where Jesus Christ makes a, a, a lame man uh, um, walk. The difference, one of the key differences between that, those mirac that miracle and this miracle is that Jesus Christ asks, you know, the, the, the person, do you want to walk and, or do you want to be, be healed and stuff like that. Here, God dispenses of that. He doesn't even do that anymore. Unlike the previous miracles that we find in Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ asks somebody if they want to be healed, God just takes the matter into his own hands and does it even before asking the man what he really wants or what he really needs.
God just looks him straight in the eye through Peter and John and says, as it were, I don't have what you want, but I have what you need. I can make you walk and live like you've never lived before. And with those words, the crippled man got his legs for the very first time. And the challenge is not just for individuals, but the challenge is for us as well as a collective church family. Jesus, I believe, is telling us, if I, can do, I, if I can do this to this man, I can do it to the whole lot of you. I can resurrect your life from the dead. Now, do you want me to do that or not? And the healing of a crippled man becomes the catalyst for the conversion of over 3,000 souls. Just a verse before the, our, the starting point uh, where we started reading from today. We find this, you know, this, this, you know, this, this interesting verse where it says, um, uh, let's see, where is that? But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. That's a big leap from 2,000. Remember when the church grew from about 120 to 2,000 in one day? Not that that's all we're, you know, that's, you know, it's not all about numerical growth, I'm sure. But you can see that between the, the growth at Pentecost at 2,000, we have here 3,000. That's an added, well, in, in, in that one instance, over 3,000 more were added to the, to the infant church. And the church was experiencing one resurrection after another, as it were, as promised by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will speak of me because he will draw from what I have from me. And now the Holy Spirit, strengthened and, and empowered by this new world that has been created. Can you sense it? Can you feel it? We live in a brand new world ushered in at the, at, at the first coming of Jesus Christ, at his death and at, at his resurrection. Despite all appearances, despite this pandemic even, our world is a better place. Why? Because with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, hope can really spring eternal. And when life gets you down, there is always a not just the possibility, that the reality that God can bring you back to real life again and again and again. And in Jesus Christ, hopelessness disappears. That is true as well, in our life together as a church. And the healing of the crippled man becomes the catalyst for the conversion of 3,000 souls, more than doubling the size of the church in just one day. Can we bring ourselves to believe that God is itching to bring about a similar phenomena here? Can resurrection happen here? It can. If we can bring ourselves to believe 
that Peter and John's experience at the temple steps is not a one-off event, but a template for you and me today. But how can it be repeated here? How can you make a dead man's legs come to life? Not by own power, for sure, that's for sure. And as I ask that question, I, uh, you know, I call your attention to a book that, you know, uh, how many of you have read a book by George Knight? It's a, uh, these days, rather controversial. Um, and he wrote a book with a very um, catchy and, and somewhat also uh, controversial uh, title. Let's see if I, if I can pull it up. The title of the book uh, that I'm referring to is The Apocalyptic Vision and the Neutering of Adventism. Have you seen that book? Have you read that book? Well, one of the things that he says about this book is this. That, you know, God called our movement, the Advent movement, for a very specific reason, centered around a very specific you know, uh, mindset, as it were, or even a worldview, as it were. It's an apocalyptic worldview. And he says that throughout the years, and he, he examines the history of the church even, and throughout the years, it's been demonstrated that Adventist churches grow when they are faithful to this calling. And they tend to just dissipate, disappear when they just try to blend in and be like just any one of the, you know, of the churches around. That's a rather, you know, a bold claim. And I've been thinking a lot about that um, lately, in, in fact. Are we staying true? First of all, I think that all of the time we need to stay true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, you know, being, being so uh, big on apocalyptic and, and end time events, stuff like that does not necessarily mean that we are not you know, emphasizing the gospel as well. You know, gospel is couched in that end time furor among Adventists. That's how it's always been. And so we always seem to manage to couch the gospel in the, you know, in the language of the three angels' messages, for example. And that's how it's always been with, with Adventists. And, 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 and uh, George Knight says, that's how Adventist churches have always grown. And that's how he thinks it will continue growing. Fascinating. I have to reread the book and, and see how else he challenges me and he challenges us. When I um, wrote up the, the, the short article uh, for the e newsletter today, I told you about the story about the, my fascination with the mudfish. I remember catching those mudfish in the, in the rice paddies, you know. It's so much fun, especially when you're catching them with your bare hands. And, oh my goodness, you, you have to really uh, get the corner of them and, and then build up really fast a berm around, you know, that corner so that you could, you could catch them. And sometimes, you know, we catch them using uh, uh, baits and, and, and lures and stuff like that. And, and we used to wring uh, rice paddies. We were not supposed to because we would end up destroying some of these tender um, 
uh, seedlings, rice seedlings. But, you know, we couldn't help ourselves as kids, and we always went. And we caught a lot of fish that way. A lot of fish. And I would go home, and I didn't even like eating it because it smelled like mud. It's mud fish. They like to wallow in mud. But, you know, something about this, this fish I mean, where did they go when all of those, when all the, the rice paddy is, is parched dry? I mean, where, did they, where in the world did they escape to? And I always wondered, and, and I always wondered, what happened to the mud fish? What happened to every single one of them? They're gone. We couldn't have caught every single one of them. And we didn't. So I asked my uncle one day, I'm not sure if this is true. Maybe you could Google it and see if my uncle was telling the truth or if he knew the truth. He said, well, you know, what happens is that when, um, uh, when uh, the, the rice paddies start drying up, they start to dig deeper into the ground where it stays moist. And there they wait for the next rain to come. So as it were, these fish would hibernate or maybe even, I don't know, die. I don't know. I don't think so. They'd, hire, they'd, they'd wait there. And then when... You know, rainy season comes and the parched, dry rice paddies turn into mud again. And all these this fish come back to life. Where did they come from? Well, one could say they'd been resurrected, resurrected from the dead. So we could catch them again and bring them home so mom could eat them. You know, this story that we have in front of us is our story as well. It is not a one-off event that, happens, that happened only back then. It is a story of how God promises to bring us back to life if we are faithful to our calling to him and if we are faithful to the message of the gospel and if we're faithful to Jesus Christ himself. And whatever situation in life you find yourself, there is always that hope for a better day for you. And there's always that hope for a better day for us as a church. I'm so pleased to see all of you here this morning. But there are times when I wonder if all of you are going to come back. When we see our church half empty or even more empty than half. And I keep wondering to myself, will there be a rebirth of the Auburn church? And if I read the story of this man... I would have to come to the same conclusion again and again. Yes, there is going to be and there is now a resurrection happening here. And it will keep on happening. It will keep on happening until Jesus is fully satisfied that we have done everything we can to spread the gospel and to enlarge his kingdom until Jesus comes we are about to start in this church something that probably we haven't done for a long time and that is to start an evangelism cycle in this church now I don't mean to scare any of you please come back to church next week and in the next couple of, uh, of, of sermons that I will be preaching I, I want to spend some time to at least unpack that before you. Maybe to demystify it and maybe to shatter some myths that have developed over time about what evangelism is 
and what evangelism isn't. And I want to challenge you in the same way that God challenges us. That if we truly, truly want our church to grow, we cannot escape proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ here. We cannot escape it. And in the same manner, we cannot escape who we are. We should never be ashamed of who we are as a people. We're Christians, yes. We're gospel believers, yes. Praise the Lord. We're Jesus lovers, yes. And we're Adventist Christians as well. That's who we are. And so when we start preaching about these and that, and you start hearing about beasts and stuff like that, there's a time and a place for preaching about the beasts. I don't want to scare you. But if there's going to be resurrection here, if, it, if it's going to happen again and again, we must do evangelism. We must. It's part of our calling. Just as it is part of our calling to disciple those that God has brought here to stay. Let's bow our heads, please, as we end this service. Father God, thank you. Lead us. Hold our hands, oh God. And where we need resurrecting, resurrect, resurrect us in the many ways that you do that. Thank you for feeding us today and for quenching our thirst today through your word and the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.